Welcome, everybody. This is uh, Myth Busting at Web Yeshiva with me, Rabbi Uri Cohen. And we have a, uh, a slightly different setup, as, uh, as you see here, uh, different, uh, different location uh, and uh, different computer. And, uh, but hopefully, hopefully the, uh, the material will still, still be the uh, same good stuff as, uh, as usual. Um, so, myth-busting session nine, uh, I want to start with a quote, um, which seems very cynical. Um, if there's a chassid who says, I saw it with my own eyes, then it's possible that he heard, meaning there's no way that what he's saying is true, that he actually saw it, maybe he heard it. But if the chassid only says that he heard it, then for sure it never happened at all. So if I didn't know better, if you gave me this quote and you said, "Who? what kind of person said this quote? I'd say, well, certainly it's somebody who's, an, who's not a chassid, who's a misnaged, somebody who uh, questions all the chassidish amaisas, uh, stories told uh, told by chassidim. But guess what? You see the, the, author, uh, the author of this quote, Rav Chaim Leib, Halberstam of Tzanz, the, the first Sanzer Rebbe, as in the Sanzer Hasidic dynasty, known as the Divrei Chaim. He was one of the most influential rabbis of the 1800s. Very, very important Hasidic rabbi. And look at that. This important Hasidic rabbi said, basically, uh, he questions any story that you hear from, uh, from a Hasid. So uh, can't get better than that. Um, let's go directly to our urban legend. Ding! I have a different bell now. Urban legend, during Birka Konim, don't look or you will go blind. Has anybody heard this one? Um, people like to repeat this one, especially not only the kind of people who, who enjoy uh, scaring children, um, but uh, people, everybody's heard it, so it must be true, as we're going to see. It's not that it's totally made up, but it's, in effect, it's made up. Rather, it's, it's based on a misunderstanding of a text. So you could say, well, we should have done this in misunderstood text. But in effect, this is, uh, this is made up, as, as uh, Rabbi Dr. Zivotofsky uh, points out. People think, well, you can't look at the Kohanim because you could lead to losing your vision. So how do you avoid this? Either covering yourself with talit if you're wearing a talit, or you turn around and you face sideways or backwards. Uh, I wouldn't know what people do because I am a Kohen. So when I'm doing Birka Kohanim, I can't see anybody else. Uh, although you should know that Kohanim are told, this is part of the halacha, we don't look at our own hands during, uh, during Birka Kohanim. That, that's, that's the halacha. So why are we not supposed to look at our hands? Is that because there's a thing about going blind? No. Uh, here's what it comes down to. What it comes down to is there is a Gemara uh, that says, uh, looking at three things can dim a person's eyesight. A rainbow, the nasi, and the Kohanim, when they stood on the Duchan, that's where when we say Duchaning in Yiddish, that's based on the word Duchan, the platform in the Beit HaMikdash, and they blessed the Jews with the Tetragrammaton, that fancy word for the four-letter name of God, uh, with the original pronunciation, which we don't even have any, anymore, but Shem HaMeforash, the, uh, the ineffable name of God. Right. So whatever it means to dim a person's eyesight, even there, it doesn't say the person can go blind. And the question is, is this to be taken literally or not? I have a whole shear about the rainbow in which at least some say it doesn't, it's not meant to be taken literally. But even if you say it's meant to be taken literally, what is this third category? Not when Birka Khanim is done now, but when it was done in the Beit HaMikdash, when they used like the name of God that we don't do anymore, and the Shekhinah, the divine presence, was on their hands. That's what the Gemara says. Like, this is the original source that people think they're quoting. They're misquoting the Gemara. Most Rishonim agree that um, this is not relevant after the Beit HaMikdash uh, was destroyed. The question, nevertheless, you're still not supposed to look at the, the Kohanim. Why not? Okay, this is a machlok at Rishonim. The Rush says because there is still the presence of the Shekhinah, not in the same way as, as it used to be, but, uh, but somewhat based on a midrash that, uh, that uh, God's, uh, God's presence is uh, uh, here. One is forbidden to look at the Kohanim because the Holy One is peering through their fingers, as it says, Pasuk in, in Shir Hashirim, and midrash in, in Shir Hashirim. So it's not that 
the Shekhinah is here on my hands when I do Berkakonim, but it it's so reminiscent, or it reminds us of when the, the uh, in some way, there's some special thing about, remember, uh, I mean, we're not discussing, we're not having a whole shear about Berkakonim, but um, Berkakonim is the only avoda service of the Kohanim and the Beit HaMikdash that we still have today without a Beit HaMikdash. And uh, when we do it, uh, we're doing something that they did in the Beit HaMikdash. It's like there's something very special about that. So it's true, we don't have the Shekhinah on our hands the way that, that we used to, but maybe there's still something. Uh, the, the Kohanim do not, the Bracha does not come from the Kohanim. The Kohanim, the Kohanim say the words, Yivarechacha, etc. Here, I'll just do that now. Yivarechacha Adonai v'yishmirecha, Yair Adonai p'nav e'lecha v'yichonecha, Yisa Adonai p'nav e'lecha v'yaseim ocha shalom. See, it was worth coming today. You get a, a special... A special, you get a special uh, bracha. Um, the bracha, it, it does not come from me as a Kohen. It comes from Hashem. The bracha comes, goes from Hashem to the people through the hands of the Kohen. Okay. During the time of the Mikdash, there was something, the Shekhinah was on the hands of the Kohanim. Okay. So maybe as a kind of a, a lower level of that, according to the Rush, that, that's why you're... You're not supposed to look at the hands of the Kohanim. The Kohanim, are, we ourselves are not supposed to look at our own hands. But a different approach, which is the one that Rabbi Zivotofsky prefers, of Tosfot, looking at the Kohanim during Dochening is forbidden because it distracts you from paying attention to the Bracha. You're supposed to concentrate. And if you can't, con- if you're not, um, if, you're, uh, if you're looking, if you're using the sense of your sight, then you're not using the, uh, the sense of your hearing as well as, uh, as you could. That's why you shouldn't be uh, looking at the Kohanim. So that's the, uh, that, that's Tosfot. Variation on this in Mangan Avram, it says, Zeichel in remembrance of the destruction of the temple. But really, nobody thinks that anything's going to happen to uh, to one's, uh, one's eyes. So why is this uh, a big deal? So, okay, so it's a mistake. But it's a mistake that leads to people doing something that is problematic, namely that they turn around because they think you're not allowed to. It's so it will be so terrible, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, your face could melt. Who knows what, what could happen to you if you see the hands and therefore they turn around. Right. That you're not supposed to do. The Gemara says in general, bracha must be given face to face. And as far back as the 1700s, the Yavitz, that's Yaakov Emden Ben Svi, Yud Ayin uh, Bet Tzadi, Yavitz. He wrote, do not do like the Amearetz. They turn their backs on the Kohanim because they're afraid about losing vision. Yeah, there's no blindness of intellect greater than this. They, these people are blind, but not in their eyes. They're blind in their mind. Uh, and he says, even covering the face with, with the Tawit is not a good idea because then that's in the way. Rather, you should just stand facing the Kohanim and look down. Okay, that's, um, that's all. Uh, it's, it doesn't get more complicated uh, uh, than that. Just face the Kohanim. Point is, if people take too literally about the, oh, you could go blind, then aside from the fact that sooner or later the kids will stop believing what the parents or rabbis say because this one clearly, one of their friends looked and nothing happened to them. Um, general rule, don't lie to your children or anybody else's children uh, uh, either for that matter. Not without a good reason like Sean Bite, etc. But uh, the problem is, and then aside from loss of innocence, people turn around and turning around is is uh, problematic. I did hear once in the name of Rav Herschel Schechter, though I couldn't find it in print, um, it's probably in one of his audio shirim, that he thought that really, nowadays you're totally allowed to look at the hands of the Kohanim because disagreeing with the opinion of the Rush, the Shekhinah is not on the hands of the Kohanim anymore. It's still a mitzvah, it's still an avoda, but the Shekhinah is not there anymore, and uh, so maybe there's even a value in, uh, in looking at the, uh, the hands of the Kohanim. I heard this years ago, so it's possible that I'm uh, uh, remembering it uh, incorrectly, but um, that, is, uh, that is something to, uh, to consider. Um, let me just uh, change one of the settings here. Um, okay, going back to, uh, 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 to the source sheet. Here we go. Next, what are we up to? We are up to an unlikely story. This is not a well-known story, but once again, it's about the Chavetz Chaim. Remember we did the Chavetz Chaim on the train? Okay, so there are a bunch of stories about how how excited the Chavetz Chaim was about doing the mitzvah of Lo Talin, or Baal Talin. There's a story about that, 
one of the several stories about the Chavetz Chaim and Baal Tawin is, is problematic. So just very briefly over here on the, uh, on the right-hand side, uh, there's Pasuk in Vayikra and another Pasuk in Devarim. It says, do not oppress people financially. Do not, lo talin, do not allow uh, the, uh, the salary that you need to pay someone. Don't let it wait overnight. Meaning if somebody does a job for you that they're supposed to be paid for this job. So don't wait. Pay them that, that same day. And if you wait, then it's like you are oppressing them. And it's formulated in two different places in the, in the Chumash. In both places, it says, don't let it stay overnight. Lo talin, like, like Lina, is a stay, staying overnight. Um, don't let it stay until, until, the, uh, until the morning. Pay him that day. It's a lo taseh, and it's an aseh. Okay? I once heard, from, again, from uh, Rav Shechter, the Rosh Kola at YU, that uh, you, can, you should have in mind to fulfill these, uh, these mitzvot when you pay the cab driver. Because that's... You, the driver did work for you, gave you a ride, and you're paying them that day, and you should have in mind that you're fulfilling the, uh, the mitzvah and the Torah. Anyway, so here's a story that was quoted by Rav Nachum Stepansky in his book, It is a two-volume work of questions that this guy asked Rav Shlomo Zalman Orbach, who passed away in the, in the mid-90s. Basically, this guy followed Rav Shlomo Zalman around and asked him questions constantly. Not the kind of guy that you really want to have around you, but the rest of us benefit from the fact that he wrote up uh, a lot of the interactions he had with Rosh Hashanah. Here's one of them. Uh, he, he writes as follows. It says in a book that there's a story about the Chavetz Chaim told by his daughter um, in which once it happened during the winter that he woke up his daughter at midnight and he asked her to come with him to go to the tailor in order to pay uh, the tailor for the work that he did that day, because the Chavetz Chaim, unfortunately, had forgotten to pay him in the evening when he got the whatever it was that, that the tailor had fixed. The problem was that the tailor's house was on the other side of the city, not that Rodin was such a big city, but Vakor Hayachazak was really cold. So he needed somebody to, it doesn't say how old the Chavetz Chaim was, but he, he needed somebody to go with him. So he woke up his daughter to go with him, and he said to her, and of our, like, it, it's not a big deal. It, everything is worth doing for, uh, in order not to violate a mitzvah in the Torah of uh, holding the, uh, the salary uh, uh, back uh, overnight. So that's a, s- a story that's told about the Chavetz Chaim in this other book. I asked Rav Shalom Zalman Orbach, how do we relate to this story? Okay. And this is what he said. It is impossible to believe this story about the Chavetz Chaim. By the way, I've asked a lot of people in the last few weeks if they can give me examples of this sort of thing, where one rabbi says, you can't believe that other story about the other rabbi. And there, I'm struggling a bit. I should have enough material to get us through session 13, but uh, uh, I struggled a little bit finding things that fit this exact definition. But here it is. He says, you can't believe that story. What? Rav Shlomo Zalman said, because he forgot to pay the tailor, he's going to wake up his daughter in the middle of the night and steal her sleep and, and then go to the tailor and wake the tailor up in the middle of the night, ruining his sleep. What? Because he, he's worried about his mitzvah? Like, that's not okay. That's not the sort of thing. It's not okay in general. And Rav Shlomo Zalman went on to say, the halacha is that if this sort of thing happens, you have to wait until the next morning. Then you go and pay. Don't wake them up. The worker would prefer that you not wake them up in the middle of the night. Seriously? Okay? And the fact that the Torah says that if somebody's being paid by the day or by the, uh, uh, by the work that, that they did, you're supposed to pay them that day, the, the fact that you should pay them uh, even through the night until dawn, that case in the Torah is talking about when the worker, in any case, is up all night. If they're up all night, then make sure to pay them. You can pay them up until the dawn. But to say, oh, the fact that Torah made in a mitzvah tells me I should wake them up, okay? The Torah never said to wake them up. And there's a whole discussion in the Gemara about this mitzvah, and the Gemara doesn't say to wake up anybody. So you can't believe this story. And then this uh, Rabbi Stepansky who was asking uh, Rabbi Shlomo Zalman uh, presented a possible way to reckon, to make the story uh, 
be more reasonable. Maybe, remember we did this with Rav Moshe Feinstein. Well, maybe what happened was, so maybe what happened was that the Chavetz Chaim knew that his daughter would be happy to come with him. And that's why, and she would want him to wake to wake her up, maybe. And maybe also the Chavetz Chaim knew that the tailor was going to be up all night. But for sure, for sure, you can't tell the story as if the Chavetz Chaim decided to do his mitzvah at the expense of the tailor, so he went to wake him up. That's not okay, Rosh Hashanah Zalman concluded. And I, I like this example because it brings out the point that when we say, this is an unlikely story. You can't believe the story. It could be that the story happened, but with details that the storyteller is leaving out that make a big difference. Because if you leave out those details, then the person hearing the story will say, oh, it's okay to wake people up in order to do your mitzvah. It is not okay to wake people up in order to do your mitzvah. So maybe it happened that the Chavetz Chaim knew that the guy was awake, but then you have to tell that as part of the story. And it seems to me that in the same category is a uh, a different there's another story that that's very similar uh to this that brings that that where the same issue comes up we're going to do it right now even though really i should do this as a separate unlikely story but i couldn't find anybody talking about this story so we're going to do it right now uh sharing my uh browser here we go this is uh this is from the uh, uh the organization Tribe. Tribe is an Orthodox Jewish uh, youth group in uh, in England, and they have a, uh, a newsletter or whatever. And they have uh, a uh, a cartoonist whose name is Paul Solomon's. They have him illustrate a script about some halacha or hashkafa uh, every week, and and they tell the story. Okay, the story doesn't come from here, but I like the way uh, it is illustrated. Literally. Here's how Rabbi Kiva Eger was very careful not to embarrass anyone. Rabbi Kiva Eger, whoops. Rabbi Kiva Eger, 18th century, he wasn't just 18th century, he was a very, very important rabbi. You might have heard him quoted in the last year because he was one of the rabbis who taught everybody, everybody what to do during the pandemic of his time. For some reason, that became very important during the last year. Anyway, he was famous for his hospitality. Every Pesach Seder, he would have many guests. Oh, no! One of his guests... Uh, knocks over the uh, the wine and it spills all over the other uh, tablecloth and everybody looks at him and he's blushing. So what does the rabbi do? He pushes over his own cup while everybody's glaring at the guest and the rabbi says, look, my glass is spilled too. Our table is wobbly. I'm so sorry, I should have warned you. And then everybody smiles and the rabbi winks at, uh, at us. Okay, it's so clever that he wanted to avoid the guy being embarrassed. So next time you're about to say something that might embarrass someone, remember the story of Rabbi Kiva Eger. What could you do to avoid another person's humiliation? This is a nice story, except for one little factor, which, like I said, I haven't found anybody writing about it, so I couldn't do this as a separate time, except for one little factor. Was Rabbi Eger really justified in putting a second stain on his tablecloth? Remember, this is not plastic. They didn't have plastic uh, in, the, uh, in the 1700s, Okay. And how did, how did they do laundry? Laundry was done by hand, by, usually by the wife, and it took all day. You know, washboard, you might have seen them in, the, uh, in museums or in uh, old movies. Okay. Why did, Rabbi, uh, why did Rabbi Eger have the right to save this person embarrassment at the expense of his wife, giving her more work to do? So I'm not saying, therefore, the story is wrong. I'm saying when you tell the story, you have to add... Rabbi Kiva Eger, knowing full well that his wife would have wanted him to do this, pushed over his cup and, uh, and saved the person embarrassment. All you have to do is add that extra phrase, and then it's a nice story. But if you leave out that phrase, then it becomes, well, it's more important, the message is, it's more important to save somebody else embarrassment than it is to care about the people of my own family. That's a bad message. All you have to do is add that extra factor. So the same way that... Um, that Rabbi, uh, that uh, the Chavetz Chaim, he might very well have woken up his daughter to go with him to the tailor if the tailor was up all night anyway, and if he knew that his daughter would have wanted him to do that. That's a reasonable story, but you have to tell it that way. You can't leave out that kind of, uh, of detail.
Okay, I'm done with that. Uh, moving right along, we are up to Street Torah. Whoops, Street Torah, where we do a uh, an opinion that is true according to one according to somebody, but it's not the only opinion. Have you ever heard this one? Women are exempt from mitzvah to say shazma grama, positive time about mitzvah because they're too busy taking care of their children. Of course, you've heard that one. That's the way it's usually presented. I'm not saying that's false. I'm saying that opinion is not the only opinion, and it's a problematic opinion. Really, I have all share on this. This is just a, um, uh, a condensed version of it. The, the Gemara says, as a general rule here in source number one, Mission Kedushin, Men are obligated, women are exempt, as opposed to positive mitzvot that are not time-bound uh, or, or negative commandments, women are, uh, are bound uh, in those. And then it goes on to say something which is a little mysterious. It says, how do you know? How do you know this, this apparent rule? It says, Gamar mitfilin, gamar, like the word gamara here, it's using the gamara to mean basically we have an oral tradition. It's not based on a text. We have a tradition that mitzvah grama are the rule for them, the rule is derived from tfilin. And we have and where's the rule of uh, that and women are exempt from uh putting on tfilin, which we've discussed before. But where do you where's the rule of tfilin before? Oh, that's also a tradition that's learned from the mitzvah of Talmud Torah, that women are exempt from the, le- the mitzvah of learning Torah on the level that, uh, of the, to the extent that, that men are obligated, women are exempt from that. And the Gemara doesn't then say, and where is that from? It's just a tradition. So we're left without a source. What's the significance of this? We'll come back to it. I'll just tell you now. Save, save us a couple of minutes. The, sor- uh, the significance is going to be, as we'll see shortly, that it's not actually a rule. It's, a, it's descriptive, not prescriptive. And it all goes back to tradition. It depends on the mitzvah. But here's the thing. The you know, trick question. What is the reason that Chazal, that our sages gave to exempt women from positive time by mitzvot? Why is that a trick question? Because they didn't give any reason. They did not give a reason at all, which to me says that they thought it was Xer Shava. Sorry, a, 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 well, it's also Xer Shava, but it was a tradition. There isn't a reason for it. Having said that, people like to give reasons for things. So you, there are two general theories to, to explain this rule, quote-unquote rule. One of them is, which we're not going to address, but I have in the larger shear, that women don't need as many mitzvot as, as men do. Let's not deal with that right now. But the more popular theory, the more standard theory, is that women are too busy with, possibly, the cooking. That's where Rabbeinu Manoel here in source number three. The kids, that's Ramosha Feinstein in, uh, in source uh, number four. Or, and this is the famous one, because this is the first, one, one of the early sources, or because women are too busy serving their husband, fulfilling their husband's needs. Now, this is not from Chazal. This is from the Avudram. Rav David Avudram, in the 13th century, wrote a commentary on the Siddur, which addresses a bunch of other issues besides the Siddur. And he's the one who said it. He says, because, Ha'isha mishubedet, mishubedet Woman has a uh, um, what's the word? Not a lien. There's an uh, she is obligated. There's something uh, an obligation upon her to do what her husband needs. Okay, well, I'm sure a lot of people have thought that, but who said that's the halacha? It doesn't say that in the Gemara. The Gemara addresses obligations of husbands and wives to each other, but it doesn't say that doesn't formulate it the way that the Avudraham said. You know, with all due respect to the Vudraham, you can't just come several hundred years after the Gemara and say, oh, the reason for the rule in the Gemara is this general rule that nobody else said until now. You know what? Nobody else said it until now, now meaning the 13th century. So there's a certain logic to it. If you say that uh, a woman is obligated to do what her husband wants her to, then the Vudraham goes on to say, if God told her, do these mitzvot, and drop whatever you're doing at home, well, then that's going to cause tensions with Shalom Bayit. Uh, and if she then um, uh, follows what her husband wants, then she's not going to be able to do, uh, uh, to do what, uh, what God wants. So in order to avoid this conflict, God 
for the sake of Shalom Bayit, God freed her from uh, a married woman from Mitzvah Seishah Zmangroma. So it's not that the logic doesn't make any sense at all, but he presents it as based on this rule, based on this rule that a woman is obligated to do what her husband wants. And you know who calls him on this? Not, no less than Rav Moshe Feinstein. In source number seven, Rav Moshe Feinstein was not a feminist by any stretch of the imagination. He doesn't mention the Vudram by name, but he argues with this point, and he says, because he, he the, uh, Rav Moshe focuses on a line in the Shulchan Aruch, which we haven't seen yet. A line, the line in the Shulchan Aruch in, in Yeridea Siman Reish Mem, which is the laws of honoring parents. The Shulchan Aruch, based on, early, based on a, an interpretation of the Gemara, says a woman, meaning a married woman, she doesn't have the ability to do Kibbut Avayim because she is mishubedet to her husband. So, oh, so you see, mishubedet to her husband. A woman does have to do whatever her husband wants, as opposed to whatever her parents want. Ramosha says, uh-uh, this must mean, it can't mean that a married woman has to do the things that her husband wants. That's A woman is exempt from, there's no, there's no obligation on the Torah level or on the rabbinic level. Rather, what it means when the Shulchan Aruch used that phrase is, that a married woman, part of being married, is that she agrees to live with her husband as opposed to living with her parents. Back in the day when uh, women were not so independent, a woman lived with her parents until she got married and moved to her husband's home. Okay, so the point is that a woman, a married woman does not have the right to say, well, I'm married now, but I'm going to still live with my parents as opposed to living with uh, with my husband. No, I'm just uh, telling my husband that. it does. It, it's not, she can't just impose that on her husband. Part of a woman being married is that she's assumed to, uh, she's expected, mishubedet, to live with her husband. Ramosha says that is a type of an obligation, a low-level obligation, and that's it. It's not that, it's not any more than she has to be in her husband's home. The point is that the, even though the Avudram formulated as, as, well, you know, a wife has to do whatever her husband asks her to do, that's not true. It's not true halachically. So you can't just base the Gemara's rule about mitzvah seishah zimangrama on a, another halacha if that other halacha is not true. Separate from that, there are other critiques of the theory. When I say the theory, I mean not just the Avudram, but any of the explanations that... Oh, well, a woman's exempt from positive time by mitzvah because she's too busy taking care of whatever it is. I know taking care of the kids is a nicer way to put it than listening to her husband. But just a few, very briefly, a few critiques from Achronim. The, the shame Aryeh says, oh, what do you mean? This rule of the women being exempt uh, seems to be based on the Torah. We do not look at a mitzvah in the Torah and say, ah, I think the reason for this mitzvah is such and such, and based on that reason, I'm going to, to draw halacha conclusions. Well, you don't get to do that. You don't get to say, well, Shabbat is all about this, and that's why uh, I don't have to keep this rule of Shabbat because, because the reason doesn't apply to me. Uh, uh, well, the kashrit is because of this reason, and for sure, kashrit, that, that's a hope. And the reason I just made up wouldn't apply in this case, and therefore I don't have to follow the halacha. No, you don't do that. The rules in the Torah apply across the board. You don't get to say, oh, the rule is limited to this reason. That's one critique of saying this rule is very, uh, I know the reason for this rule. Meaning the rule, and we'll see, see shortly, maybe it isn't a rule, but the rule is formulated in the Gemara that women are exempt from these positive time-bound mitzvot. If you give a reason for it, well then, somebody will come along and say, well, that reason doesn't apply to me, and therefore I'm not going to follow this rule. Or to put it in, in, in other terms, as the uh, Torah Tamima says in source number 10, somebody could come along and say, oh, so you're saying that unmarried women are obligated on a Torah level to do positive time by mitzvot? You're saying that, that widows, divorcees, who are not living with a husband, uh, they're all automatically obligated? No, you don't get to do that. The rabbis could have made that exception. That exception could have appeared anywhere. It does not appear anywhere. There is no such thing. Meaning, you can't give a reason that applies to one category of women. Granted, most women back in the day were married. But it's to say, uh, um, 
to say that this is the reason, you would think that somebody would have brought up, oh, so as long as a woman is not, I don't know, is not married, so then she's obligated to daven three times a day and go to shul and, uh, and daven with a minion or whatever are the other obligations, uh, all the other things that we assume that women are exempt for. No, 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 they're obligated. Not true. You can't just make that up. Uh, here's another application. The Kitab Sofer says, we don't find anywhere anybody saying that Women are obligated in a positive time bound mitzvot if they are shave valtase, if they are done through not doing something, through being passive. Aside, we're not even getting into specific examples. Let's say the mitzvah of ma'akeh, where as long as you have the ma'akeh up, the, the balcony up on, on, your, on your roof so that people don't fall off, that's a way of fulfilling the, the mitzvah of ma'akeh. We don't say that, that uh, that's a shave valtase and therefore a woman is, uh, is obligated. It's not formulated that way. Tartamim goes on to say, um, we don't find, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, we do find in the Rishonim that if a woman wants to be strict on herself and to fulfill one of the positive time-bound mitzvot, she's allowed to. Aside from, uh, we discussed about tefillin and, and uh, uh, also the tzitzit in front of other people. But general rule, mitzvah, a woman wants to do the mitzvah of lulav or, or shofar or, or, or any of the other, or, or the mitzvah of learning Torah, woman wants to come to shul. Nobody says that they shouldn't do that. Why not? Why don't we say that? After all, if the reason is that a woman is obligated to do what her husband wants, well, then maybe she doesn't get to be strict at the expense of this obligation to her husband. So the, the, uh, the Tartamil concludes, this can't be the reason. Like, you can make some sense out of it, but you can't say that's the reason, and now let's draw halacha conclusions from it. You can't do that. The reason why it's not a big deal to say this is, guess what? It turns out the Gemara itself says it's not really a rule at all. Same Gemara, not even, not even an obscure Gemara. It's like, a couple of dapim later in the same parrot. The Gemara says in source number 11, which are mitzvot oseishas mangroma that women are exempt from? Uh, and it gives uh, sukkah and lulav and shofar and tzitzit and tefillin. The Gemara says, uklalahu? Really? Is that, uh, is, is that the, is that a general rule? How about the following mitzvot? Matzah at the Seder. Simcha, meaning the obligation of simcha and yom tov. Hakel. They're getting together, uh, getting all the people together uh, after the mitzvah, after Shemitah. Well, these three, mitzvah Seishas and Mangrama, they're all time-bound. V'nashim chayavot! Women are obligated in these. V'tu, and furthermore, Talmud Torah, here's another list of mitzvah. Talmud Torah, the obligation to learn the, the whole Torah. Puri of Arivia, obligation uh, to have children. Pidina Ben, redeeming the firstborn uh, son. Those three mitzvot, love mitzvot aseishas magramo. They are positive mitzvot. They're not time bound. V'nashim p'tirot. Women are still exempt from them. So how can you say the rule is women are obligated in the positive time bound mitzvot? I'm sorry, women are obligated in the positive mitzvot only if they aren't time bound, and they are exempt if they, the mitzvot are time bound. We just gave six exceptions to this rule. The Gemara says, "Are you telling me this is a general rule?" The Gemara answers, "Amar Rabbi Yochanan." We do not derive anything from a general rule. Even where the rule is formulated as, except for, the rule is this, except for this exception. With this one exception, that sounds like there's only one exception. So any new cases, they aren't exceptions. No, you cannot derive that. You can make a rule, but there can always be an exception. You don't have the right to say, oh, that thing isn't an exception. Any new case that comes up, you can always say it's an exception. Meaning, not just in this case. In general, when you have a, a rule presented by the Gemara, it's not an absolute rule. It's more of a description than a prescription. And the Rambam, in his commentary on the Mishnah, whoops, on the Mishnah that, that we started with, the Rambam said, quotes this Gemara, so when the rabbis said, oh, mitzvot oseishas man grama, women are exempt, they really meant most, not all. But what does it come down to? Really, there's no klal. It's not a real rule, the Ramam says, elanim sarim alpeh. Which mitzvot women are obligated in, which mitzvot women are exempt from, it all comes down to Mesorah. 
It all comes down to an oral tradition. Vehim Devarim Mekubawim. Misorah and Kabbalah are the same thing. Misorah is handing down the tradition. Kabbalah is accepting the tradition. Meaning, how do you know if a woman is obligated to give a mitzvah? You look at what the Gemara says about that mitzvah. You cannot draw any conclusion definitively from looking at whether this mitzvah is time-bound or not. Surprise! It's the Rambam's interpretation of the Gemara. The point is, there's nothing wrong with presenting it as a descriptive rule. It is a descriptive rule. But then if you, if you start giving a reason for it, I'm not going back to what I uh, said before. How come the Gemara doesn't give a reason why women are exempt from positive time by mitzvot? The answer is because it's not actually a rule. It's a rule except for the exceptions. So to come up with, it, with an explanation is whatever explanation you give is going to be problematic because then you'll judge other mitzvot based on whether they fit the explanation. But it doesn't work that way. Any explanation you give is going to be limited. It can't be the explanation because it isn't a real rule in the first place. And you give an explanation that implies that there's a real rule, there isn't a real rule. Sorry to disappoint you. It could very well be that the Torah in exempting women from sukkah and lulav and and the rabbis exempting women from minyan it could be that a motivation behind it is in order to give women more time to spend with their husband or with their children with their home could be but we don't get to say that's the reason saying that's the reason is street torah and we should try to avoid it moving right along the word afikomen means dessert in greek well afikomen is complicated so we're only going to look for a few minutes here. I, I presented two articles, uh, one blog from David Kerwin, we've seen it before, Balashon, and one a longer piece from uh, 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 Professor Emeritus, uh, Rabbi Dr. Joseph Tabori from uh, Bariwan University. I have his full article here, uh, but not the footnotes. You can find it uh, online. I, I gave the uh, uh, reference here. Basically, Avi Komen is messy to understand what it is, and this really, it, this deserves a long sheer, but let's just look at a couple of paragraphs. This is from uh, David Kerwin. While there are a number of Midrashim and folk etymologies, the most commonly accepted answer, meaning among scholars today, is that the word afikomen comes from the Greek word ephikomion. Sorry for my bad Greek pronunciation, meaning the festal procession after the meal. Epi means after, as in epilogue, the thing that follows the, uh, the story in the book. And komos means banquet or merrymaking, and that's the root of the English word comedy. In case you're wondering, of course the word afikomen is from Greek. So if somebody says, oh, I heard that it means dessert in Greek, that, that's not so far off. The possibility that afikomen means dessert is, is one of the possibilities in the Gemara, but if you're saying it comes from Greek, we know, we know what, it mean, what it means in Greek. I'll explain this uh, momentarily, but just how do you know? How do you know that uh, that this afikomen is a Greek word? Because it starts with aleph peyud, and all the words like that in the Gemara are from Greek. You've heard the word apikoros, a heretic. Apikoros is the same word as epicurean. Of course, in modern English, epicurean is somebody who enjoys their food, a gourmet, right? But back in the time of the Gemara, the epicures were the people who enjoy their food because they denied olam haba, it, uh, eat, drink, and be merry because there's no afterlife. Ah, that's heresy. So the rabbis used the word for uh, epicure to apply to uh, any heretic. Um, but whenever you see an epi word in the Gemara, that, that's a Greek word. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with it. But then what do, where do we go from there? So I'm quoting now from... Uh, Professor Tabori, the sages feared, and again, there's a lot more to say on this. That's why I, I put two full pages on the source sheet. Please uh, uh, do go through it when you get a chance. Just going to look at one or two paragraphs here. The sages feared that the Seder night, which is so similar in many ways to the Greek symposium, on purpose, that's the way that Chazal set it up, uh, a whole discussion before the meal, we call it Magid, but it's based on the, uh, the Greek symposium, sitting around and reclining, having a whole discussion before the meal, the sages feared that the Seder would degenerate into the kind of lewd behavior, pre-suit, which was the general rule at a symposium. Dessert at a Greek or Roman banquet usually signaled a transition to, to what the Greeks called homos, okay? As in the thing after the 
uh, party, what we call today an after party. After various kinds of desserts, they would indulge in drinking. And we read of the riotous finale to the banquet which Socrates attended. We can easily imagine to what extremes the revelers could go. In case you're wondering, hey, I read Plato, and I don't remember Plato talking about any riotous banquet. Okay, that's true. That's true. This is not quoting, I, I didn't bring the, the footnote here, but uh, if you look online at footnote five, you'll see he's not quoting Plato, he's quoting Xenophon. Xenophon is somebody else who wrote a Socratic dialogue. It's called the Symposium, not Plato's Symposium. But in Xenophon's Symposium, it, the discussion ends with a lot of pre-suit. Okay, uh, Philo uh, expressed harsh criticism of this. The sages would have no part of this, and therefore they declared one should have no afikomen after the Karban Pesach. Professor Shaul Lieberman, uh, in his book, Yerushalmi Kipshuto, explained what the Greeks would do. When the partying would, re partying would reach its peak, they used to burst into other houses and cajole the occupants to join them and continue the celebration there. This is called Efikomazen. The Mishnah warned, Karim Pesach should not be concluded that way with an after party. And that, and then that's why, that's one, it's not the only opinion in the Gemara, but basically that, that explains one of the opinions in the Gemara. The early, I'm skipping a bit, the earliest source which uses the word afikomen to refer to the matzah that we eat at the end of the Seder is the students of Rashi. Granted, that was a long time ago, but it's not Chazal. All the different opinions in the Gemara about what afikomen means do not actually apply it to mean what we use it to mean, namely the matzah that we eat after the meal. And that's okay, meaning the term changed over the years, but the original meaning of afikomen is, is, is after party, and this should be clear that it's from Greek based on the fact that it starts with uh, e, uh, EPI. Um, before we go on, I just want to uh, share with you an email that uh, Rebecca, who's here with us, uh, uh, sent me uh, uh, after the Mishloch Manot uh, discussion that we had uh, last week. Uh, Here's what Rebecca wrote. You know how your teacher said it's not a thing that people believe in Eretz Yisrael, that you need two different brachot for Mishmach Manot? I wonder if English-speaking teachers with non-fluent Hebrew hear the word manot and link it to the word minim, types. So thus, the two portions in their brain become two types. And the most convenient way to distinguish between different types of food to little ones is to stick to foods with two different brachot. And also, preschoolers are at the age when they're learning brachot, so it's an opportunity to reinforce lessons about brachot. Then all you need is for someone to accept this lesson as well-sourced, and bang, we have an urban legend. So let's go with that. Uh, thank you, for Rebecca, for, uh, for explaining this uh, urban legend. Moving right along, history. Hey, did you hear about this one? Then it's Siv, the Rosh Yeshiva of the famous Velazhin Yeshiva. He closed the Velazhin Yeshiva rather than allow any secular studies. Now, most people don't know that much about this, but this came, became a big deal in 1988. I'm just very, very briefly. The Lakewood Hader sent out to donors and potential donors a, uh, a biography translated into English called My Uncle the Nitziv, written by Rabbi Epstein, the Torah Tamima, about the Nitziv. And it included a, a bunch of things that many Haredim found very problematic, like the Nitziv would read newspapers, and that uh, the Nitziv did not intrinsically have a problem with secular studies in, um, in Volusian, but the government was going to require several hours of secular studies a day, in effect, shutting down the yeshiva, so there wasn't any choice. That's more or less the, the summary as presented by the, the Nitziv's nephew. Um, as Rav Tendler... He should live and be well. He's actually uh, not that well, and uh, we hope that he gets better soon. Rav Tendler, at the time, told somebody at, at YU that, um, talking about biographies of Gedolim, he went on to talk about the biography of his father-in-law, of Moshe Feinstein, but he says, occasionally, intentional falsehoods are included in rabbi books, in Gadol books, to pervert the truths. And a recent example is the banning of the Tartmima. Oh, so the Lakewood Cheder then sent another letter saying, we want everybody, we apologize, uh, we're sorry we sent out this problematic book, it doesn't represent the, the true tradition, uh, and everybody should like send it back, and uh, you know, we're really sorry about it. And Rabbi Tenner said that, that it, the, the book exposes a century-old hoax that then it said closed volusion rather than allow math and Russian into the curriculum. No, he did allow secular subjects, but he closed the yeshiva when the government interfered. So that's true. It, it, there's a little bit more than that. What I recommend is an article which you can find online in PDF. Um, 
58-page article by Rabbi J.J. Schachter, a very, very thorough uh, historian called Haskala, Secular Studies on the Close of the Yeshiva in Volazhin. Uh, in the interest of, of uh, time, I'm just going to uh, uh, summarize that the Nitziv did not have a problem with reading newspapers, knowing Russian, even studying secular studies. What he did have a problem with was people doing these things during yeshiva time. Meaning it wasn't just that the Nitziv objected to the government imposing secular studies. That's true, he did. But he also objected to anything in his full-time yeshiva other than full-time learning. For example, this is from Rabbi Shakti's article, the Nitziv closed a society in the yeshiva devoted to studying Chachamat Yisrael, which is basically Jewish philosophy. No, you can only learn Gemara. Does it sound familiar? That was the way that the, the Nitziv looked at his yeshiva. He outlawed all newspapers, all journals. He did not allow the students to publish their own Torah journals. He would not allow Chibat Zion, that was the early religious Zionist association that the Nitziv himself was part of. He did not allow the students to, uh, to get involved in it. They did clandestinely. He told somebody, this did not belong to the legend. You do not suspend Torah study for the sake of a mitzvah that can be done by others. In other words, as long as you're learning this full-time yeshiva, don't be doing anything else. You know how extreme he was? Here's how extreme he was. Look at number four. The Nitziv did not allow yeshiva students to stop learning in order to recite to him on behalf of his very sick wife. Wow. That's pretty extreme. Uh, I don't know of any yeshiva that, that does that today. We don't consider that bit Torah. Like, you're... You're davening three times a day anyway, so you add extra tehillim. No, nothing other than minimal obligations, only learning to our full time. Okay, so in light of that, if you say, yes, the Natsib did not want to allow secular studies in his yeshiva, well then, right, because he didn't allow anything in his yeshiva except for learning Gemara, but it didn't, he didn't have an intrinsic problem with it, and in fact... Um, the part that, that I skipped, he did not have a problem with, with learning secular studies, uh, knowing Russian, etc., etc., but don't do it when you're supposed to be learning full-time. Okay, so don't, don't present it as the way that the Lakewood Cheder presented as like, oh, the, the Siv was against secular studies. That's not the same thing. And as Rabbi J.D. Schachter concludes his article, that's the projection of the present onto the past. By the way, it's a very depressing article. Uh, it's still worth going through, but very depressing article because it shows how in the last uh, couple of years, uh, of the Vladimir Yeshiva, it basically collapsed internally even before the government shut it down because of infighting and disrespect on the part of the students and all sorts of stuff that we don't like to remember about the Yeshiva. So if you want to get it, I mean, the Yeshiva was around for several decades, but just near the end, you know, it wasn't worth continuing the Yeshiva anyway. So it's not like it was such a terrible tragedy that it was closed. Okay, we're running out of time. Let's look at a misunderstood text. Avalanche here on this, we're going to summarize. The Gemara says, woe to someone whose children are girls. Does the Gemara say this? Yes, it does. But there are two Gemaras where it appears where in context, it's not as bad as it looks. How, how can it not be bad to say, woe to someone whose children are girls? Okay, so here's the summary. In source number one, the Gemara brings what I call a triple debate, meaning a debate that appears in three different generations of rabbis, to be honest, men, Debating whether to look on the bright side or the downside of having a daughter. And three different generations, one rabbi said, oh, no, no, it's good to have a daughter. And another rabbi said, ah, not so much. Okay, Was there, were there rabbis who said, you know what, it's not so good to have a daughter? Yes, there were rabbis who said that. But then there was always a rabbi who disagreed with that. So it's not fair, it's taking it out of context to say either the Gemara says it's bad to have a daughter or... The Gemara says it's good to have a daughter. That's not fair. Just say it's a machloket. It's not like there's something where there's a practical ramification anyway. I have all sheer about saying a bracha on a baby girl, and in the context of the Gemara, it wasn't so obvious. In the time of the Gemara, girls were uh, had vi- of, of limited use to their parents in the uh, patriarchal society. Uh, we don't have time to go through that now, but just very briefly. Rabbi Yochanan versus Reish Lakish during the time of the early Amorim. Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi versus Bar Kapara a generation before that, and Rabbi Meir versus Rabbi Yehuda. In three different generations, the rabbis debated whether, from a father's point of view, because that's what we're talking about, a father's point of view, I'll prove that shortly, is it better or worse to have a daughter? Take a look at the way it's formulated in the, the middle of this Gemara. Rabbi Shimon Berebi. I'm sorry, I, I said uh, I said Rabbi, well, 
you'll see shortly. Rabbi Shimon, the son of Rabbi Yudah Anasi, it barata. His wife had a baby girl, Malatov. date. But he, the father, Rabbi Shimon, felt bad. Sorry, that's the truth. Amrwebuha, his father, none other than Rabbi Hudan Anasi, who put together the Mishnah, said to him, Olam. No, 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 you should look on the on the positive side, which I know I skipped this, but it's in the previous Gemara. Rabbi Yochanan said, no, having a girl is revia, like pru or vu. Like we want there to be more people in the world. So it's good. You need to have girls as well as boys. In fact, if you think about it, the females are the ones who actually have the children. So that's a big deal, aside from uh, society limitations uh, of women. So Rabbi Yudan Nasi quoted that to his son, like, look on the bright side. Amoy Bar Kapara. Bar Kapara then said to Rabbi Shimon, the hapless father, Your father gave you consolations that are worthless. What your father said is not true, because we have a statement in a Brita that says as follows, meaning there's a statement that's negative about having a girl. The world cannot exist without males and females, but Ella. Ashrei Lamisha Banav Zacharim. Happy is the one, meaning the father, whose children are male. Oy lo Lamisha Banav Nekevot. And woe to the father, whose children are girls. Well, that's pretty negative, but wait, the st- sentence continues. The world cannot exist without both perfumers and tanners. The people, these are both with the sense of smell, right? Perfume, amazing sense of smell, of uh, uh, amazing scent. Borsi was basically, a tannery was the worst smelling thing ever. Turning turning uh, dead animals into leather uh, was a, a disgusting thing. And, you know, the tanners needed to be out of town. Uh, they smelled terrible. So the world needs both, but Ashri Misha Umunuto Busmi, happy is the person who works as a perfumer, and Oiwa Misha Umunuto Borsi, woe to the person who works as a tanner. So woe, the context here is that when we say woe, we're not talking about something objective. We're not saying it's bad to make leather. The world needs leather. In fact, to be honest, the world needs leather a lot more than needs perfume. But it's a... It, there's something very negative. There's something uh, problematic about working as a, as a tanner. And so, too, at least back in the time of the Gemara, there was something much more problematic be, about being female than being a male. I'm not saying that the statement about is positive. It is definitely negative. But, first of all, it's in the context of a machloket. There's opinion on both sides. And second, it's in the context of the world needs both boys and girls, but... A father is going to be happier when he has a boy than when he has a girl. Now, why am I emphasizing the father? Because the other Gemara that mentions this makes it very clear that it's talking about a father. Take a look at number two, the Ben Sira parallel. By the way, this is not ben, the alphabet of Ben Sira, which we discussed in the context of Lilith. That was a medieval book. This is Ben Sira, the book from the Apocrypha, meaning it was written at the time of the, the end of Tanakh, and Chazal decided not to include it in Tanakh, so it's, uh, it's not Torah. The rabbis debated on this daf of Sanhedrin. Are you even allowed to learn Ben Sirah or not? It's actually a very funny Gemara because it goes like this. No, you're not allowed to learn Ben Sirah because it says blah, blah, blah. And the, the rabbi said, oh, that's okay. That's okay uh, because uh, that parallels a statement made by Chazal. Oh, okay, fine. You're not allowed to learn Ben Sirah because it says this. No, that's also okay. And it ends up saying the reason you're not allowed to learn Ben Sirah is because it says don't never trust a man with a split beard. And Rashi explains he must have gotten that by, by conniving, by pulling his beard because he's conniving, so he must be a plotting person. That's stupid. That's ridiculous. And once you find that there's something ridiculous in a book, then just it's, it's a waste of time to read it. But the, the funny thing about the Gemara is, how do you know that you shouldn't read Ben Sirah? Oh, how about this quote? How about that quote? The rabbi is discussing whether you're allowed to read it or not based on quoting it. So clearly those rabbis were very familiar with the book. So in the context of, of this funny Gemara, the Gemara says, is it possible that the reason you shouldn't read Ben Sirah is because it says the following thing, the following thing is problematic, and the Gemara is going to say, no, 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 the following thing, it, it, the quote from Ben Sirah is paralleled by Chazal. Here's the quote. This is actual, I checked, this is a, a real quote, I put in the reference. This is a real quote from uh, the book of Ben Sirah. But, a daughter, Le'aviha, as far as her father is concerned, Matmona Shav is a, uh, a false present. Uh, a false gift, a bad gift, a gift that you want to return. Mi pachda lo yishan Out of 
fear because of her, her father will not be able to sleep at night. Why? Bikat Nuta, when she's a little girl, Shem, well, not that little, somewhat little, maybe she'll be taken advantage of sexually by somebody uh, who's uh, uh, basically preying on her innocence. But Naruta, when she gets old, you know, like 12, Shematizana, maybe she'll choose of her own free will to uh, to act uh, in a sexually inappropriate way. Bagra, when she gets really old, you know, like 12 and a half, Shema Lotinase, maybe she won't get married. And Nisei, even you'd think that when she's married, then her father can stop worrying about her. No, even after she's married, her father will worry. Maybe she won't have kids. And he's kina, even when the daughter is finally old, her father will keep worrying about her. Maybe she will turn to witchcraft, which we know from elsewhere in Chazal was what bored women did during, during the time of the Mishnah and Gemara. Um, this is a quote from Ben Sira. Okay? A father will always, will always be worried about his daughter. This is not making a statement about girls or women. It's making a statement about fathers being worried or maybe ridiculously worried about their daughter. It doesn't say anything about mother's worries. It doesn't say anything about worrying about sons. A father would be worried about his daughter. Presumably the father will not be worried about his son. The Gemara says, is that or esque? Is that a reason not to read Ben Sira? The Gemara says, no. How about Anami Actually, the rabbis said something very similar. You know what the rabbis said? The world cannot exist without boys and girls. But happy is the one, the father, whose children are boys. And woe to the father's children are girls. Aha! Now I understand what that statement means. Not that it's bad to have a girl, but that fathers will worry about daughters. And therefore, from a father's perspective, it's much easier to have a boy because, yeah, I went through whatever he's going through. My son will be okay. Ah, daughter, that's worth worrying about. Point is, the Gemara itself is telling us that the statement, woe to his children or girls, is not a statement about girls. It's a statement about overprotective fathers. You can agree or disagree. And based on what we saw earlier in source number one, that's what there's a debate about in three different generations. It's not a statement about girls. So the statement, woe to me, he whose children are girls, is basically saying fathers worry too much about their daughters, and that presumably they don't worry enough about their, their sons. Anyway, let, let's, uh, let's wrap this up with Stranger Than Fiction. A prominent rabbi gave Haskamot, rabbinic, a rabbinic letter of approval, to books that he himself had published anonymously. This is not that well known, but it is in fact true. Um, as presented, I saw this elsewhere, and then I, I was able to find it in, in English, thank God, for, to present it for you, an article written by Rabbi Ari Khan. He's the same one who uh, exposed the myth about Rabbi Aaron the Milkman. Um, in his article, published in 1988, which he then put uh, on his website a few uh, years ago, about Hakel. There was a small pamphlet entitled Zecher Lamikdash. Okay, containing explanations about Hakel. It's an interesting pamphlet because it presents, he doesn't say this here, but it presents uh, a uh, suggestion that we should have Zecher Hakel, that we don't have Hakel anymore, but maybe uh, in the Sukkot after, uh, after Shemitah, we should have a, a big get-together in Israel. And uh, you know what? We do. We do. It, not during his lifetime. Uh, the... Uh, uh, of the of the of this author, I'll get to shortly. They only they've been doing this since 19, 1945. But uh, who wrote this this pamphlet? Anonymous pamphlet. Rabbi Eliyahu David Rabinowitz Taomim, known as the Aderet after his initials, Aleph Dalad Reish Taf Aderet. These days, he's best known as Rav Cook's father-in-law. Rav Cook. Okay, but he was well-known before Rav Cook. He was the Rav of Panovich. He wrote over 120 Sfarim, very, very well-known at, at the time. A few of his Sfarim he apparently published anonymously. In fact, let's briefly look at them uh, right now. Here is the title page of uh, Kuntris Zecher Mikdash, in which... Uh, you see that there's no author's name, Tafresh Memtet, uh, uh, 18, uh, 1889. There's no author's name, but we do have on the page of Haskamot, here's Haskamot from Rabbi Yosef uh, Dov Halevi, also known as the, the base Halevi, Rabbi Salvechik's great-grandfather. Here's Rashmul Molever, very important for early religious Zionist uh, rabbis. And then here's Haskamot from 
Rabbi Eliyahu David Rabinowitz to Omim. He gave a haskama to this book. Oh, and then he wrote a, a few pages of Ha'arot, which you sometimes find a rabbi not only writes, oh, this is a nice book, or more likely is. I know the author, I haven't read his book, but, you know, he seems like a nice guy. Every now and then there's a, a rabbi who actually read the book, and he, within that there's a small subset of introductions. I've taught Hakdamot as a separate uh, course. Uh, interesting Hakdamot, anyway. Uh, there's a subset of rabbis who say, I read your book, and here's what I think about it. Here's a list of comments. So the next few pages are comments from the Rav Aponovich. He wrote comments on this book without actually indicating to the reader that actually he wrote the book himself. And here's the other one, Acharit Hashanim, which is a, a book, a booklet. These are both booklets on uh, Vidoy Maser. And what does it say? Chuvar me eight. Dot, 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 dot. It was published by dot, 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 meaning the author does not want his name to, to be known. And here's Haskama. Here's Haskama from, what do you know, the Nitziv. We were just talking about the Nitziv. Okay? Here's Haskama from Rebichil Michalevi Epstein of Navardak, also known as the Aruch HaShulchan, uh, or the, uh, the Nitziv's uh, brother-in-law. And then here's Haskama from Rebbe Eliel David Rabinowitz Tolman, the Golan of Panovich, who wrote this book. Okay, that is really weird. So let's, we'll just wrap it up with uh, what Rabbi Ari Khan comments on this. In Oddity, in the original pamphlet, is the inclusion of an approbation written by the Rav Panovich, the Adarit himself. This is especially odd, given that the author, presumably the Adarit, declined to sign his name to the work out of modesty. And yet the approbation signed by the Adarit describes his author as Rav Hagon HaMachaber Shwita, the brilliant rabbi who authored this pamphlet. This is pretty funny. This would be a peculiar modus operandi for a man motivated by modesty. However, it is worth noting that of the three approbations included in the original pamphlet, that of the Adarit is the only one which attests to having read the contents and includes three pages of supplemental notes. Okay, that is, that is pretty weird. I don't have a good explanation for it, I do, I, uh, but I think it is pretty, uh, uh, pretty interesting uh, nonetheless. Uh, we, are, we, are, we are out of time. I want to thank everybody for uh, for joining me. I'm going to um, uh, end the uh, the video, and I'll stay for uh, going through the chat. So thanks to everybody for coming, and uh, and see you next week.